This morning, we're going to be looking together at Judges chapter 10 through the end of Judges chapter 11. So I want to first of all invite you to turn over there in your Bibles. Um, If you brought a Bible with you, Judges chapter 10 verse 6 is where you want to turn. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take one of the Bibles that we've provided. We've got them on the, uh, the center of each aisle. And the reason we have those is that especially during this series where we're, we're tracking with some long stories in the Old Testament, it's really helpful to have it in front of you so that you can see where I'm coming from. Am I able to read every word or focus on every detail? It's helpful for you to be able to follow along if you had your own copy. And also because we'd love for you to have a copy of the Bible of your own. We'd love for you to take the one that we've provided. Um, that is our gift to you. And, and we'd love to talk to you about what you read there if that's not familiar to you. The more you pay attention to stories and judges, the more you may be tempted to wonder why this book is in the Bible. Let's just be honest about that, right? It's not that it's lacking for interesting details or intriguing characters. We've seen plenty of those. We've seen Ehud and Eglon. They were pretty interesting. We've seen Gideon and Abimelech, who neither were what we expected of them. We've seen those deadly women. Jael with her tent peg and Deborah with her mockery of a grieving mother or that woman without a name who dropped a stone from a tower on top of Abimelech's skull and put an end to him. It's a collection of ancient stories. It's plenty interesting, isn't it? But why is it here? Why is it in a book like the Bible? The answer to that question Something we come back to each week. I'm going to say it again now because it's especially important for the text that we're going to look at this morning. The answer to that question, why it's in the Bible, is that we need relationship history. Now, sort of a lacuna in my life, my development as a human, is the experience of having past romantic relationships that, let's say, didn't end well. I, uh, I, I came to know my wife when I was like 12 years old. We grew up together. We've never known another But, and I realize that's why I'm not going to ever have a successful career as a songwriter, right? I'm in the wrong town for a story like that one. But what I I hear from my friends who have known a little more of the world than I have is that there, there, there comes a time in a new relationship where you gotta you gotta open up about past relationships, about things you've learned along the way, and those with those that you've dated before. I think that kind of relationship history is something that is a huge priority in the Bible because the whole Bible is here to set you up for a relationship with the God who made you. That's the whole point. The Bible uses the language of covenants all the way through it and that's just a sort of legal way of talking about a really important relationship. The Bible is here to set you up for a relationship. And the way that God has chosen to introduce to anyone who will look what they can expect from Him in a relationship is a long thousands and thousands of years tale of how He has related to the people of Israel. You need to know the history that Judges tells so that you can know what to expect from God if you decide to engage in a relationship with Him. You need to know what's going to be expected from you, and you need to know what you can expect from Him. In 
Judges, for all its darkness, all its ugly twists and turns, Judges, from beginning to end, is a window into the beauty of God's love. I hope the story we're going to look at this morning is going to help you see why more clearly than you have. But Before we get into the story, we start with a, a sort of summary. The first part of the text that we're going to look at this morning, I'm going to read it in just a moment. It's a, it's, it's, it's a comment from the author of this book, and the editor, if you will, who collected these stories and presented them to, to, to us and everyone else who's ever read them. It's, it's a comment where he's rising up above all the trees of the individual stories of the judges, and he's looking at the forest. And like a good preacher, he's bringing back around the point he started with, the point he's been trying to make ever since, the point he's going to make until the very end of the book. He's bringing you back up so that you can see that point, to make sure you're not missing it. So we're going to begin this morning by looking at his editorial comment on what's been going on. We're going to look at what Judges teaches us about God's love. That's going to set us up for the next Judge story that we're going to look at in chapter 11, the story of Jephthah. We're going to see there what Jephthah misses about God's love. Jephthah hasn't learned the lesson that Judges is here to teach. And that will set us up to conclude with what Jesus shows us about God's love. Because the story of Jephthah, it's a tragic one. It's unexpectedly tragic and dark. But it is a beautiful preparation for the story of the cross. We're going to end with with that point. First, what Judges teaches us about God's love. Here at the halfway point of the book, the author has stopped for a summary. I want to read it for you. I'm going to ask you to stand now in honor of God's word while I do that. I'm going to read from chapter 10. I'm going to start in verse 6 and read through verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, We have sinned against you because we've forsaken our God and served the Baals. And they said to the people of Israel, and the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians? And from the Amorites, from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you've forsaken me, and served other gods, and therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. 
Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. This is God's word. You can be seated. We need to see first what Judges teaches about God's love because it's helpful to capture what we've been looking at these last few weeks and it sets up what happens in the story of Jephthah we're going to look at this morning. I've been reading this book to my children at night and part of our, our evening family devotions, uh, getting ready for the series, just helping, helping them get ready for what we're going to consider as a church. Even my five-year-old noticed something as we've read through this book. There was one night where he's, I don't remember exactly his words, they were much more interesting than my summary will be, but basically said, that isn't it interesting that God keeps punishing them and saving them and punishing them and saving them and punishing them and saving them and punishing them and saving them. Why does he keep going back and forth? That's the right question. That's what we're supposed to be asking about judges at this point. That's, the part of cha- that's what this part of chapter 10 is here to show us. Why does God keep punishing them and saving them over and over and over? The answer lies in the nature of God's love. I want you to notice two things about God's love that Judges has been teaching us. Both of them come out in this summary. and They've come out in every story so far. Two things. The first thing Judges has taught us about God's love is that God's love is demanding. His love is demanding. And here's what I mean by that. God doesn't want just part of Israel or just part of you in your life. He wants all of Israel. He wants all of you. He wants not what he can get from them in a relationship. He wants them. He's not interested in a transaction where Israel gives God something that then obligates God to give them something in return. That's not what he wants. He's not looking for a transaction, but for a deep and intimate relationship. And that's what Israel's not given him. Did you notice when we read through that section how many gods Israel had sought after? The author's making sure you've got a comprehensive list here. He doesn't want you to miss the point. Basically, it's a catalog of Israel's neighbors. If they were in proximity to Israel and they had a god that they attributed their success to, then Israel also went running after their god. Because Israel wasn't looking for a relationship. They were looking at these gods as a means to an end. They had things they wanted to get from these gods. They wanted a trade and nothing more. The graphic image that Judges has been using for the way that Israel treated not just the gods of their neighbors, but the god of their fathers, is an image of prostitution. Israel played the role of prostitute to these gods, trading a false intimacy in exchange for some payment from these gods. They would only give in order to get. It wasn't even personal for them. And it certainly wasn't exclusive. 
But that's not enough for God. He's not a John. He's a jealous husband with deep, intense affection for his wife. And because of his love, he demands absolute commitment, absolute faithfulness, absolute unwavering allegiance. He doesn't want what Israel could offer as a trade for what he might give them in return. He wants love and trust and commitment because his love is demanding. It's intense. It's not casual. And now he knows, the course of this story, we've, we've seen him give and give and give, and we've seen Israel leave him and leave him and leave him over and over and over, and now they come to him in their distress again, crying out for deliverance in verse 10, and the Lord reminds them of all the times that he delivered them before. And of all the times they'd responded to his deliverance with ingratitude and unfaithfulness. And he says to them, verse 13, I will save you no more. Go cry to the gods that you've chosen. Let them save you. It's a harsh word. But can you blame him? What would you say about his love for Israel if it didn't bother him that they ran after these other gods? What would you say about a husband who didn't mind that his wife was a prostitute? What you'd say is that he doesn't love her. It's not her he cares about. If he's still with her at all, he's just using her for something. Israel would have rather been used by God in some limited way, something they could give to him that he didn't have, than be possessed by him in a deep and intimate relationship. And so God gives them what they want over and over and over. Unfettered access to the gods who only enslave them. Friends, that's what sin always does to us. God's punishment against us for, for, for not trusting Him, not seeking Him, is just to give us what we want and to watch as we are enslaved by it. Now, you'd be right to wonder at this point in the story if it is finally over, if God is, is just going to wash His hands of Israel now. Maybe he should move on and find another people to love and protect and provide for. One who'll trust them. One who'll actually appreciate his goodness and recognize what they have in him. That would make sense. But verse 16 has a remarkable line that points to the other side of God's love. The second thing that judges have been teaching us about God's love and sets up the story that's to come next. A remarkable line. Did you notice this? He became impatient over the misery of Israel. The second thing you need to know about God's love, the judges have been here, has been teaching us, is that God's love is gracious. Yes, it's demanding, 
That's why he keeps punishing Israel when they don't relate to him in the exclusive and intimate way that he wants, that he demands. He keeps punishing them, but he also keeps saving them because his love is gracious. It's free. And he can't stand the pain of his people. He won't tolerate it. He became impatient over the misery of Israel. Why? What does he see in them? Why do they have such a hold on him? Friends, there is no reason whatsoever except that this is what God's love is like. When he sets his love on you, he doesn't let go. And that love will have nothing to do with the object of his love and everything to do with the character of the one who loves. God loves them because God loves him. God loves them because God is love. What has Judges taught us about God's love so far? It's taught us that his love is demanding. He wants nothing less than absolute commitment in a relationship of intimacy and trust and dependence. He won't settle for less, period. But his love is also gracious and free. And he loves his people too much to let them have what they deserve. What we've seen so far in Judges is that any hope Israel has, and therefore, friends, any hope that any of us will ever have depends on God's radical compassion and not on anything we might be able to muster to give him in return. So far, that's what Judges teaches us about God's love. Now, the story we're going to look at for the rest of our time this morning is the story of Jephthah, and it is a story of Jephthah missing the point about God's love. It's an ugly story. It's a story that you don't expect to find in the Bible. And it's a story that sets us up for Jesus in a way that's powerful and clear. I want to show you that. We're going to look at mostly, spend most of our time in chapter 11 here. But I want to make sure you notice here at the end of chapter 10, verse 17 we take a little bit of turn. We've just seen these two things about God's love. I will save you no more. And he's impatient over the misery of Israel. I'm done with you. I can't be done with you. We've seen both of those things. We're supposed to be asking now, what's next? What will the Lord do from here? What will he do with these people? Verse 17 and 18. The Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped in Gilead. They're coming for Israel again. And the people of Israel came together and encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, this would have been the region most affected by the Ammonites, they said to one another, Who's the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. They need a leader. They need someone to rally their troops and lead them into battle. And they know that whoever that is, if he can pull off Defeat of the Ammonites will be worthy of their support, their trust as the leader of their clan. So that's what they're looking for. And the question is, who's it going to be? 
And what we're asking now, because we know this background, is is God going to raise another one up? He shouldn't, based on the way he's been treated, based on what Israel has done with these other deliverers that he's raised up. He's said that he's going to save them no more. What's he going to do now? Jephthah is the answer to that question. I don't know if there's a clearer example in this book that these judges are not heroes. They are not moral examples for us to follow. I don't know if there's a clearer clear example of that truth than Jephthah. Where his story goes is horrifying, but I think where it begins, you'll see a striking resemblance to the story of God and Israel and what we've just been talking about. Notice where Jephthah gets his start. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. The question that's been asked is, who is going to begin to fight against the Ammonites? And now Jephthah enters the story. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite, he was a mighty warrior. That's what Israel needed. But he was the son of a prostitute. And Israel had not loved him well. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. He was an Israelite in good standing. He owned the same name as his clan. Gilead's wife bore him sons. But Jephthah was born not to his wife, but to a prostitute. And verse 2 says, When the wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out. They said, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you're the son of another woman. They don't want to share. He's an outcast. He lives in shame. He's not one of us. He doesn't belong. They drive Jephthah out of their family and he flees, verse 3 says, to some other land, the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. What you're supposed to get there is that Jephthah had become a kind of band, leader of a band of raiders, of, of, of fighters that maybe were vigilantes or maybe they're mercenaries. They'll fight off your enemies for a price or... Maybe they just were robbing people on the highway, a kind of Robin Hood situation. He doesn't really say, but that, that's what he was doing. He had collected himself a band, and he was their leader, and they were, they were fighting people out in the land of Tob. Well, somehow he'd gotten himself a reputation as a mighty warrior. And so when the leaders of Gilead start looking around for who might be able to lead them against the Ammonites, somebody talks to somebody who's heard from somebody that that kid Jephthah that grew up here He's actually turned himself into some kind of fighter. So they say. When they, when the, the, Eliad, the elders of Gilead say to themselves, let's go get him. They went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob, verse 5 says, and they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. Does that sound familiar? Just like God, Jephthah was rejected. By his people. Just like God, his people come back to him in their hour of need and want something from him. Just like God, Jephthah calls them on their hypocrisy. Verse 7, Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me? Drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? But now Jephthah agrees. And just like God, the one who was rejected and despised becomes the deliverer. 
The next verses are them hashing out a bargain. Jephthah will lead them in battle. If he's successful, he'll then lead them in peace. He wants to be their king or some substitute for that. They agree. They don't have any options. And immediately Jephthah acts. The rest of, most of the rest of chapter 11 is Jephthah not yet fighting, but calling the leaders of the Ammonites and negotiating with them. He wants to know what, why they think they have a claim on Israel's land. And then he launches into this long, drawn-out, legal argument for why they have no claim on what belongs to Israel. We're not going to go into all of those details. Just know he starts there with a really long and detailed history lesson about how Israel came to be where they are and why the Ammonites have no right to expect their land. But it was a, a futile effort and he knows it. And by the end, he knows it's time to fight. And it's there that we get Jephthah's clearest statement of faith. After the end of his case, knowing the Ammonites have rejected it, Jephthah tells them, okay, let's let the Lord decide. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. Verse 27. This is Jephthah's moment. This is why Jephthah comes up again later in the Bible. Why he gets celebrated later in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11 is a big collection of names from the Old Testament who were these heroes of faith. Jephthah makes the list. This moment is why. Faced with this huge army, he did believe that God had the power to deliver them. He was willing to go out into battle and let the battle be a test of whose God was stronger. He puts his money where his mouth is and he leads Israel out. But... But the, the main focus of this story, friends, is not Jephthah's faith in the power of God. The main focus of this story isn't on the victory that he wins, but on something Jephthah does on his way to victory. Something that shows that though Jephthah believed God was powerful, he didn't understand God's love. He knew that God could deliver them. He didn't yet believe that God would simply because he loved them. What Jephthah does on his way to victory is something unthinkable. It is horrible. It's barbaric. Look at verse 29. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. That's the phrase that comes to these judges. When when God raises them up and he's going to use them to deliver, that's that's what we're told about them. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon them. God's power, not theirs. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to the Mizbah of Gilead. And from Mizbah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, Then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. What's he offering? He offers God a trade. That's what he's offering. 
He's bargained with the leaders of Gilead. He's bargained with the leaders of the Ammonites. He's a bargainer, and he's trying now to bargain with God. What's he offering to sacrifice? According to most commentators, though there's a little bit of ambiguity about the whoever or whatever comes out of my door, most agree he has in mind a human life. The way that the phrase reads in the original language suggests it. And the way that he describes the scene. Something or someone coming out of my doors to meet you. Know, a goat doesn't just come out of the doors to meet his master, right? He's talking about a person and not just a person, but someone close to him. Someone who would have been in his home. Someone who would have been excited enough about his return to come out and meet him and celebrate his victory. He's offering to kill someone he loves to get God on his side. The victory that Jephthah wins is barely described at all. It's not the point. There's just a couple of verses that say he goes out, he wins, game over. Our eyes are meant to be drawn to what happens on his way home from his victory. Verse 34 tells us. Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. Her father's home. He wasn't killed in the battle. He's won. So she comes out in joy to greet him in exactly the way that culture would have done that. She's got tambourines. She's dancing. She's been waiting on this moment. And as soon as he saw her, verse 35 says, he tore his clothes and he said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I've opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. She, for her part, accepts his terms. She knows the importance of vows to to that culture. She tells him to do whatever he said he would. She only asks one thing and it's heartbreaking. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to the vow that he had made. It's horrifying. And there's no use trying to explain it away or clean it up. That's what the text says. What's going on here? What just happened? What just happened was certainly not something God wanted from Jephthah. Far from having asked Jephthah to kill his daughter in gratitude for a victory, God's law actually 
condemns the sacrifice of humans. That practice was common in the ancient world. That was something that Israel's neighbors were doing. It's something that you may have learned about in, in study of American history, something that, that some of the, uh, the, the empires in Central and South America commonly practiced, and they were in really good company. In the ancient world, human sacrifice was normal. Israel was not supposed to be normal. Israel valued human life in a different way. God had specifically said, you can't do this. So Jephthah's treating God like a pagan now. Earlier in the story, he reflected God in God's relationship with Israel. The rejected one coming to deliver for those who had, been reje- who had rejected him. Now, though, he's fully reflecting Israel. Israel's cluelessness about who it is they are dealing with when they deal with the Lord of their fathers. Israel's constant treatment of God like just some other pagan deity who's got to be paid off. What's going on here? Jephthah is missing two things about God's love. The same two things that Judges is here to teach us about God's love. When Jephthah thinks he can buy deliverance from God, even by the precious life of his daughter, Jephthah shows first that he does not get God's love is something he cannot afford to buy. God wants all of him. He wants relationship with Israel. He doesn't want something Israel can can use as payment. He wants them. Jephthah doesn't get it. Jephthah's right that after all that Israel has done, rejecting God over and over and over again, he shouldn't expect God to deliver them against the Ammonites. On one hand, he's right to expect, I don't deserve anything from God. So, so part of his desire to sacrifice makes some sense. You know, as is, God and I are not even Stephen. Like, I'm, in the, I'm in the red in this relationship. What he doesn't get is that, offer, it's that anything he has to offer could, could bridge that gap. It's too late. That ship had sailed. He can't deserve anything from God. He's like the guy who goes out for dinner in a fancy restaurant Someone else picks up the tab and then you offer to tip the guy who's valeted your car and you think that that makes you even. Jephthah doesn't get the scale of what he owes. He doesn't understand God's holiness. He doesn't understand how demanding God's love is. That's the first thing he misses. The second thing he misses is that he doesn't get God's love is not something you have to buy. It's not something you can buy, but it's also not something you have to buy. He's wrong that you only get from God what you pay for. Every time God has delivered Israel throughout this book, He's delivered them freely, not because they deserve it, but because His love is merciful and compassionate and free. It's not like our love. It's just who God is. But Jephthah still thinks you have to barter with God, that you only get as much of him as what you can pay for. He doesn't understand grace. He doesn't understand that even his sacrifice of what was most precious to him in the world might as well have been worthless. And it was completely unnecessary. A 
I said earlier at the top that, that the reason stories like this one are in the Bible is that we need relationship history. We need to know what we can expect from God in a relationship if you want to be in one with Him. And you need to know what God expects from you in a relationship if you want to be in one with Him. So what do we learn from this story about what God is like and about how, what we can expect from a relationship with God? Two things that correspond directly to what we've learned about His love. And two things that become so much more clear when we see His love, not just in the light of Jephthah, but in the light of Jesus. The first thing is that you shouldn't, you cannot live as if you can earn God's love. Do not live as if you can earn God's love. You can't. His love demands perfect allegiance, trust, faithfulness. And you already have failed to give him that. It's too late for you to deserve God's favor for your life. And if you relate to him as if you have to earn his love, All you're showing is that you don't get how serious sin is. And how great and perfect and unblemished is God's holiness. Don't live as if you can't earn God, as if you can earn God's love because you can't. It's the first thing that we're shown here. The second thing we're shown here. Don't live as if you have to earn God's love. Because friends, you don't. It's a gift, free for the taking. First John 4, 9 and 10 says this. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we've loved God. Not that we've ever done anything to deserve His kindness in our lives. But that He loved us. Not that we've offered the sacrifice of our children or anything else precious. But that He sent His Son His child to be the propitiation for our sins. God doesn't ask you any more than He asked Jephthah to sacrifice anything, much less your children. He has chosen to sacrifice His Son so that everything God demands, He also provides. There is not one thing God's love demands of you that His love does not also provide to you in Jesus. Friends, you can live towards God as if you've got to earn your way with Him. But that's a horrible way to live. 
You'll live in fear, wondering if you've done enough. You'll live in shame, because when you recognize you haven't, you'll be unwilling to accept anything that you don't deserve. You might live in anger when you're deceived enough to believe that God has not given you what you deserve from your life, as if He's been unfair with you. There are a lot of ways this can go. All of them are ugly. If you choose to live as if you get from God only what you deserve from Him. But God doesn't ask you to live that way. He doesn't ask you to sacrifice anything to have peace with Him and to enjoy the promise that He is for you in Jesus. His love isn't up for sale. He doesn't respond to our initiative. Because His love is boundless, unimaginable, and free. Rooted not in you and what you do today or tomorrow or the next day, but rooted in His unchanging, steadfast character. And in Jesus, completely finished, never to be repeated, work for you on the cross. You've got two choices. You can relate to God based on what you think He owes you, what you think you can earn from Him. Or you can relate to God based on what He's already given you. You can evaluate what happens to you tomorrow. You don't know what that'll be. Whatever it is. You can interact with it and evaluate it based on what you think God owes you. Or you can evaluate it and interact with it based on what He's already given you in Jesus. Father, that's a choice that all of us face every day no matter how long We've considered Christ no matter how long perhaps we've even been committed to Him as Christians. Every day we face opportunities to treat you as if we have to pay you off, to treat you as if you owe us something unpaid, or to treat you as if you have already done what's necessary to prove your love and to give it to us freely and forever in Jesus and we know enough about ourselves to know we make bad choices about how we live and view you. We pray that by your word, by the message of judges, by the example of Jephthah, you would correct us. You would draw us further in. And you would give us deeper confidence in our standing before you, not as those who are on trial but as those who have been adopted once and for all. Help us to live in this love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.